Very simply, I mean, I would call it greed. Digging into Apple's reported $275 billion deal with the Chinese Communist Party. They're paying off presidents around the world. Whether it's academia, our politics, our economics, people are being compromised. Today, I sit down with Anders Kaur, publisher of the Journal of Political Risk, columnist for the Epoch Times, and author of the book, Concentration of Power. In the past, we've had pandemics, and you did not have this level of individual control by the state. Is the trajectory of history always toward ever greater concentrations of power? Don't ever let a single freedom go. Don't give an inch of territory to the CCP or any other dictator or autocrat. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Anders Kaur, such a pleasure to have you back on American Thought Leaders. Thank you. Anders, it's been a while since we've talked, and since you, I mean, talked on camera, you've actually become quite a prolific columnist. It's actually quite amazing. I mean, it's every day, every couple of days, I see a new article. And you wrote a really fascinating column on essentially Apple's gift to the Chinese regime, presumably to allow it to function within China's borders and uh, you know, continue functioning. Anyway, tell me a little bit about uh, this, uh, this reality. Well, Apple apparently had a secret agreement a couple of years ago uh, with the Chinese Communist Party to give them about $275 billion. It seems like about that in terms of forced technology transfer, development costs, um, and maybe some other stuff. Um, it wasn't exactly clear from the reporting, but you know, it's a significant sum of money. Um, it seems to have been coerced. Uh, right beforehand, uh, China was uh, not allowing certain things to be on the App Store. Um, so it, it does seem like a, a textbook example of uh, forced technology transfer. Also, before they gave that, uh, to sweeten the negotiations, it appeared like a few days before they gave that, they put a $1 billion investment into Didi. Um, so that was questionable too. It was a, the ride-hailing app in China that was in direct competition with Uber. Um, and it was at a time when Uber and Didi were competing for market share in China. So it was an American company stepping in to support a Chinese company that was in competition with an American company. And you can see how the Chinese Communist Party is using its power to warp the strategic uh, and tactical kind of abilities and, and approach that American companies take, that American politicians take, that academics take. It's quite uh, remarkable that, that the Chinese Communist Party can do this um, so effectively without more pushback from you know, higher levels of our government, um, our businessmen, our, our business people. Um, you know, it's, a, it's, it's very concerning. Well, okay, and I, this of course speaks to exactly the topic of, of your book, but you know, so how is it that China or the Chinese regime has this kind of leverage that they can do something like this without it even really being known for a number of years? The CCP has an incredible concentration of power, really, in Beijing, and not only the CCP, but Xi Jinping himself, as uh, emperor for life, as they say, um, has more power, arguably, 
than any other single individual on planet Earth. Um, and that makes him a very dangerous person, especially given that he is clearly looking for more power, whether it's uh, personal power over the Chinese people or power over uh, neighboring nations, not only neighboring nations, um, but power in D.C., power in Brussels, uh, London, Paris. He's affecting and influencing uh, our top leadership globally. And that is, uh, we, you know, we really need to be concerned about that. Our team reached out to Apple, but they did not immediately respond. Let's go to this, this question, because you were talking about the concentration of power, right? So even 10 years ago, probably, I don't know this for sure, but probably the Chinese Communist Party could not have pulled this off with Apple. Or, I mean, Apple was certainly not in China at, at, in the way it is. But so maybe this, I'm already answering some of the question, but how did the CCP get this leverage? Chart it out from me over time. I mean, let's go all the way back to the 1930s um, and the 1920s, 1921, when the CCP was founded. Um, you know, they were a small, it was a very small party in China. They were able to grow through uh, bringing in uh, workers, peasants, essentially. Uh, in the 1930s, they took their first piece of territory. Um, they were supported by Stalin for that. Uh, they moved to, you know, they had the Great March back. They waited out World War II, uh, most of World War II, as the nationalists were fighting the Japanese. Um, and then they came in at the end um, and essentially mopped things up and took over. Now, when they took over China, they had control of one of the biggest raw markets um, in terms of number of people that the world has. And that, the, the power of that is, uh, is hard to explain. But even back then in 1949, the British, the Americans, they were all trying to get in to this market and to maintain the uh, market share that they had because everyone had business in China already. And they knew that to maintain that power or to maintain that market access, they needed uh, the acceptance of the Chinese Communist Party. So all the way back in the 40s, in the 50s. Um, we were actually competing with the British, we were competing with other countries to maintain market share. That has continued over the years. Um, in 2008, uh, when China, well, in the 70s, we opened up to China. We were hoping that uh, we would liberalize China um, through more economic engagement. We should have known that we had been engaging with China economically for years, and, and it did not work to liberalize um, the CCP. We should have known then. We really should have known in 1989 uh, at, at the Tiananmen Square massacre that things weren't working. Our strategy of engagement uh, of China simply did not work to liberalize the country politically. Um, finally, in about 2008, uh, when we had our uh, recession, um, I think China really decided, or the, the leadership in China decided that it was time to take a more forward presence. They felt that it was, they could argue that, that we were weak, that capitalism was weak, that democracy was weak. And you really saw a change, especially with Xi Jinping coming in in around 2012, you really saw a change to a much more aggressive approach. Biding time was a thing of the past at that point. And China uh, moved forward, Xi Jinping moved forward to 
expand on his power and start claiming that democracy, capitalism, market approaches to economics uh, were a thing of the past. And that is now where we are. Um, and as China's uh, economic growth has skyrocketed, uh, their military power is skyrocketing. And at this point, they're building more Navy ships than we are um, annually. And they're building hypersonics, they're building um, uh, drones, artificial intelligence, in some areas, supercomputing, they're actually ahead of the United States uh, in terms of their technological capabilities. So it's an incredibly dangerous time. Um, and I feel like we haven't, as a nation, really woken up to the threat that the CCP in Beijing uh, provides for us as a nation. It's remarkable to see, you know, to sort of chart the rise of the Chinese regime and, and the power that it holds today. But it's like, to me, this was fueled by the U.S. economy, from everything I understand. and and it and the level at which, for example, Apple is dependent on the Chinese regime itself and to be in its good graces is that that is remarkable as the world's largest or, or close to being the world's largest company, bigger than most a bigger economy than most countries, right? Yet, essentially subservient, right? I think so. It's subservient because it has to have access to that market. So Beijing acts as a gatekeeper uh, to that massive quantity of 1.4 billion people that Apple wants to access. They want those people to buy phones. They want those people to provide inexpensive labor, which is getting more expensive. But uh, they want the polysilicon that they uh, that they can get from sh the Xinjiang region of China. China is a massive economy. It's a, something like 20% of the world's economy or something at this point. Um, so this is, you know, that's a lot of power for Xi Jinping to have. Whereas the U.S. president doesn't have that kind of power. We, as an open system, as a, as a market economy, um, we prefer freedom. We prefer to allow our corporations and our people to engage freely with people on the outside. But because we have so much freedom, in a sense, um, our government doesn't have quite as much power as Xi Jinping has when he can decide to, to turn off or turn on uh, the App Store for Apple. Um, so it's a, it's a, it, they have quite a bit of power that, that Apple needs. Well, and they also have the other side, right? You, you talked to, spoke to it a little bit, this, the supply chain, like some of the you know, source components, some of the you know, source minerals. But also, I mean, they produce those phones there. I mean, if, if the regime decided to look badly at Apple, suddenly, you know, what would happen to Apple's sales globally? It would crater, wouldn't it? I mean, it, it's, it's astounding when you think about that. Yeah, it's not, and it's not only the $275 billion. China can ask Tim Cook to have influence on our government back in D.C., um, which is free for Tim Cook. Tim Cook can come and he can talk to Trump, he can talk to Biden, um, and he can say, listen, we need, uh, you know, a, a peaceful relationship with China. I don't want you to make too big a deal about human rights abuse in China because that might hurt my business. If it hurts my business, you know, it hurts my shareholders and it's bad for you. So it's, it's the influence that Beijing has over American politics through our corporations is actually quite similar to the influence that Beijing has in other countries, whether it's Uganda 
or Philippines, uh, they wield quite a bit of uh, power um, through being able to turn on and turn off uh, imports and exports from, uh, from between China and all other countries in the world. And they use it in a way that we don't. And that gives them this tremendous power. And you were, you know, you also started speaking to this, that also there's a, a kind of maybe the most disturbing sort of power, which is the ability to have us subvert our values, or I guess not, not prioritize their values so highly as we sh maybe we should. Absolutely. We have our values, whether it's democracy, human rights, freedom of speech, and we also have our greed. And sometimes we put our greed ahead of our values as Americans, and uh, you can see that quite frequently, whether it's uh, Ray Dalio or Schwartzman or many of the billionaires who are doing business in China. Um, and they specifically, they say quite right outright that they, they can't look at the human rights issues. They can't look at the governance issues. Um, they're not experts in this. Um, they leave that to government, right? And actually, that is the cue for government to step in and say, okay, well, it's the government's responsibility to ensure that American companies are doing the right thing globally, um, that other companies globally, Europeans, uh, the, the EU, Germany, France, Britain, these, these countries need to make sure and coordinate their approach and their strategy to China so that they make sure that our corporations are not selling out democracy when they're doing business in China. And th that doesn't look very promising to me right now, Anders, from where I sit. We're certainly not doing enough. The SEC is not doing enough, for example, uh, in enforcing Chinese companies that list in the United States uh, to provide the same level of data that American companies have to provide. So this gives the Chinese companies an advantage. Um, they can do things that Americans can't, that American companies can't do. And it puts our shareholders, um, our investors, and investors globally at huge risk because they're putting money, they're dumping money into companies that aren't required to disclose all of the facts that they should be disclosing. You know, we know of multiple examples of pretty massive fraud because of this lack of disclosure, right? Because, you know, which of course the Chinese Communist Party uh, leverages uh, all the time. Um, I want to talk a little bit about this, just briefly, about the sort of moral equivalency we heard from uh, from Mr. Dalio. You know, talk, talking about human rights in China. Well, we have our own human rights problems here in the U.S. What do you think about that? They just don't compare. You can't compare a triple genocide in China of the Uyghurs, Tibetans, and Falun Gong um, to what's going on in the United States. Of course, every country can be better than it is. Every democracy can be, uh, you know, can have a better uh, record, human rights record. Um, but to compare the two is a, a total whitewash of China. Um, and a slander on the United States. It's, it's, it's absolutely wrong to say that. So do you think that people that say such things, because you know, there, there are many people that do, they, do they believe that? Maybe he thinks he's going to uh, get a better deal for his investments in China. I mean, I think that if you prove, as, if, as, a, as a billionaire doing business in China, if you prove to China that you are on the Chinese Communist Party's side, 
whether it's by saying the right things about China, not saying the wrong things about Taiwan, uh, donating $275 billion in a secret agreement uh, to tech transfers to China. Um, if you prove that, maybe they give you a better deal. Maybe they give you a better deal in a short term that, that maximizes your short-term revenues, increases your bonus as a CEO, but sells out shareholders down the road. It's a, it's a very dangerous uh, position to put your shareholders into because they don't really know why you're, why you're giving that $275 billion if it's a secret agreement. I found reading your book, frankly, a bit disturbing, okay? Um, you postulate a whole, you know, expansive theory of how power accumulates in societies over time. It's, it's absolutely fascinating to me. The, the, the really disturbing part is that, you know, you argue that the process really only goes in one direction towards uh, increased accumulation of power and kind of the logical conclusion of that, of course, is sort of, you know, the single global government hegemon, I think, as you describe in, in the book, and that your expectation on the current course is that that will be the illib very illiberal Chinese communist regime. And I, of course, you know, it's, it's not pleasant to read such things, knowing the realities that you just mentioned. Right. Uh, it's certainly... Uh, could be the CCP that comes out on top at the end of history. Um, Fukuyama, you know, said that in the 90s he believed we had achieved the end of history. It was democratic, it was liberal, small l. Um, you know, and then later he said uh, when that was clearly not the case, uh, when the rise of Xi Jinping, the rise of Putin, um, you know, in dictatorial manner made that clear that it wasn't the case. He said, oh, maybe the end of history, uh, you know, we haven't reached the end of history. Maybe we have an illiberal end of history. Um, and so I take that a bit further. I say I think that the end of history is likely to be illiberal. I think, um, and I discuss some of the causal mechanisms that get us there. Um, and I liken it to a ratchet. It tends to go in one direction. Um, it tends to go towards the concentration of power. Um, and it tends to, so in a geographic level, the first way that I noticed it was geographically. Over history, tribes, clans, thousands of years ago, tribes and clans would aggregate into larger units, kingdoms. Kingdoms would aggregate into states. States became empires and really big alliance systems like NATO or uh, the Warsaw Pact in the old Soviet Union. So these are growing aggregations of power and there's a centralization of power that happens in the process over these thousands of years. Um, but that's not the only way that power concentrates. We also see that over time the state through its improving technologies, its ability to surveil people more effectively, are able to control our individual lives in increasingly powerful ways. Um, you know, in, in ways that uh, on one hand, as, as we discussed, on one hand security is improved 
we're less likely to get mugged on, when I'm walking down the street. Um, but at the same time, we lose our privacy. That's just one example. Um, but in general, there is this concentration of power. And we really, you really see it in China um, with the growth of the, ge the geograph geographical power of Beijing. It, it's, you know, from the second century when you had the BC, when you had the Warring States period in China, um, to today, you had a process, an aggregation of power uh, in Beijing as a centralized state. Um, but that state is now expanding its influence and power uh, on a global level. The Chinese Communist Party, as Roche Doshi has written in his book, The Long Game, uh, is, it has a goal of global hegemony. It has a goal of controlling the entire planet. This is accepted truth now in academia. It's Oxford University Press. Uh, Rose Doshi works for Biden now uh, in the administration. So this is already accepted. Uh, it's a process, I think, that, that we have to look at, and a historical trend that we have to look at um, that requires uh, a very active approach to make sure that we don't get there. Um, and we're not doing that today. And that's part of why I wrote the book, is because we need to take a more active approach in defending the liberties that we have now, in defending the sovereignties that we have, the national sovereignties that we have, from aggregation into these really powerful supranational uh, units um, that do endanger them in the long term. It's interesting talking about these supranational units, right? I mean, there's 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 a whole kind of bunch of them that that exists out there right now. Of course, there's the UN, right, which many people are actually describing as being heavily co-opted by China. There's certainly you know there's definitely has huge control over a number of the agencies, and we saw you know during the pandemic of its influence on the WHO, for example, like a very pivotal UN body, right. Um, so that's one thing. Then we have places like, you know, hyper concentrations of wealth, like at Davos, at the World Economic Forum. There's another power center. Some, some people will say that this is the, the most powerful power center of all. I don't know if that's true or not. I mean, certainly it's a discussion of whether, it, you know, uh, whether it's in, in Beijing or not. I don't, for you, it might be obvious. I don't know. I don't know if it is to everybody. Um, but yeah, the, there's, there's potentially vying you know, different massive concentrations of power and wealth that are, will be vying with each other for supremacy. Is that what you see? Absolutely. There is definitely a competition between these supranational entities. So, for example, in the, in the Cold War, you had NATO going up against the Warsaw Pact. And you needed a strong NATO to be able to defend democracy in Europe and the United States and really the rest of the world uh, from the Soviet Empire and the growth of the Soviet Empire. Um, so the supranational entities aren't always bad. Sometimes when they're developed by democracies for the protection of democracies, they're actually quite important. But at the same time, they are still an aggregation of power. And they are part of this process of, of aggregation of power over time. Um, and th there is the risk, there's always the risk that they will be taken over by some illiberal uh, unit at some point in the future. And we have seen in history adverse regime changes from democracies to dictatorships. For example, Mussolini or Hitler 
um, you know, where you had a democratic structure beneath that was taken advantage of by an, by an autocrat, uh, by someone who was totalitarian-minded. Or Chavez, for the example, like a more recent example. I mean, that, that, I, I, I even think that today there's a lot of people that don't realize how quickly and how dramatically Venezuela transformed mm -hmm. from, you know, affluent, free, democratic country to, um, you know, the Maduro diet, as it's called, you know, state now. Right. Nicaragua, recently. I mean, Nicaragua, the, the, the revolution in Nicaragua that turned it communist, uh, but now more recently, they've just gone over to Beijing's camp. Uh, they're, rec they're going to recognize Beijing instead of Taiwan. You know, so this is, it's happening country after country. Taiwan is losing all of its allies uh, because Beijing's economic power is becoming so powerful that they're able to influence capital city after capital city to remove any diplomatic recognition of Taiwan. Some, someone might be reading the concentration of power and think to themselves, well, Anders, this is a foregone conclusion. It's just going to kind of ratchet up to this global hegemon and, you know, there's nothing, really nothing we can do. I mean, you're, it, I actually think you make a pretty convincing case about the trajectory. Well, I think that there is a trajectory and I think there are institutions that we can put in place to try to preserve the diversity, the the disaggregation of power that we have now. Um, so, for example, the U.S. Constitution, the division of powers, uh, you know, between the the three branches of government is very important in terms of maintaining our democracy, maintaining our freedoms, maintaining, ensuring that nobody becomes a, an emperor for life like Xi Jinping. Um, you know, sunset clauses in laws where we, sometimes we decide it's an emergency. We have to give more power to the president uh, to deal with this emergency. Uh, we do that, but in, we include in that law a sunset clause so that in three years, it ought, the president automatically loses that power. Those things are very important. They're part of the institutional fabric that maintains our freedoms uh, indefinitely into the future. The U.S. Constitution absolutely one of the most important documents uh, to maintain freedom to ensure that power in the United States doesn't ra continue uh, to ratchet up into some kind of uh, king. You know, we were very, very cognizant of the danger at that time of the aggregation of power. Well, there's, you know, in America right now, there's all sorts of people deeply concerned that, you know, that those let's call it checks and balances are, you know, under assault for, you know, precisely the reason we've been talking about, right? Because there's always that interest, right? Is it human nature? What is it that drives this, this concentration of power that you, that you describe? Very simply, I mean, I would call it greed. I think avarice, greed uh, is driving people to seek ever more power individually. Um, they use the institutions um, that are out there, the hierarchies that are out there, uh, to expand their own power. They're able to main, maintain and ensure that the aggregations of power that are there in terms of hierarchies uh, do not break apart because they're using those hierarchies to incentivize and dis disincentivize the people within the hierarchies not to, uh, not to leave the hierarchy in some way, not to revolt and leave. Um, and so that, over time, leads to an aggregation within the hierarchy. 
hierarchies then also are in conflict with other hierarchies. They take each other over. They take each other over. That leads to an aggregation of power. And then hierarchies sometimes, in, because they're trying to defend themselves from yet other hierarchies, they voluntarily aggregate uh, with other, with, you know, with with each other in order to defend themselves from outside processes. And you know, this is often called state building, empire building. Um, you know, there are many ways to aggregate power. There are very few ways to disaggregate. You know, um, one of the really fascinating concepts that that you outline in concentration of power is this idea of a, you know, a hierarchy that's kind of lead, that's leaderless, so to speak. Or maybe, you know, it's not exactly leaderless, but there isn't, you know, sort of one person out there pulling all the strings. Um, and frankly, even in China, uh, Chairman Xi is accountable to some extent to these, to these giant, you know, billionaire families that, you know, it's essentially, as we know, a kind of a mafia-like system there. So he's not, you know, he doesn't have, you know, complete control. But it struck me as something that, that might resemble the type of, you know, leadership structure that's developing in, in like, frankly, in the free world, right? Sort of leaderless concentration of power. Tell me about this. This is very, very, very interesting. I'm just, I'm just starting to think about it, frankly. Well, the idea is that, uh, you know, shareholders are, follow, are, are supposedly uh, the leaders of corporations. Uh, CEOs are the leaders of corporations. But as you said, uh, these top leaders have their own things that they're following. They're following their families. They're following uh, their, um, you know, they're, they each, each person is following someone else. So even a U.S. president, for example, is following voters. As you said, Xi Jinping is following uh, billionaires and other power holders, military power holders. Um, in China. So there's a kind of a leaderless quality to the international system and the hierarchies that make up the international system. Um, there's, and what's concerning about it in a way is that as power aggregates, the leaders become disjointed from any sense of uh, competition with other hierarchies. So they end up being able to do things uh, that are entirely arbitrary. Um, ethically uh, without anchor. Um, so you, you, you get leaders that are making decisions based, for example, on aesthetics. Um, you know, in China, it's disturbing that uh, the Chinese Communist Party is so stuck on not only its political ideology, but its racial ideology. It's Han Chinese uh, racism, really, against Uyghurs, against Tibetans. Um, it's bigotry against other religions. And I say other religions because in a way communism is kind of like a religion. But it's bigotry against Falun Gong or Christians or uh, Tibetan religions. Um, it is this totalizing, uh, aesthetic, homogenizing approach to politics and culture, um, that is, I think, there is an is a is kind of an arbitrary aesthetic quality to it that's disturbing, and they're only able to do that because there's starting to be no competitors for the Chinese Communist Party um, within China. 
but also increasingly outside of China, corporations, other governments are starting to fall into line with what the Chinese Communist Party wants them to do in a way that really should concern us. Um, we should be resisting more. We should be seeing more evidence of resistance against the CCP that we're just not seeing. The G7, the world's wealthiest countries, recently met. They couldn't agree even on a diplomatic boycott of the Olympic Games when there's three genocides going on in China. How is that possible? Japan, Italy, Germany, France, they couldn't agree to a clear, clear diplomatic boycott. Well, so this is what I was saying, Anders, that uh, it doesn't look very promising for where, from where I sit, right? And I mean, and it's this economic, I mean, part of it, and you, you know, you, you put it well, that greed is obviously a very central element here, but this, you know, economic connections which have been created between all the countries that you just mentioned and the Chinese regime and um, all of its kind of tools of influence and the, you know, one belt, one road initiative across, you know, to kind of entrench some of these debt trap diplomacy and sort of some of the poorer countries altogether um, creates a pretty dire, dire picture. It is. It's a, it is a dire picture. And if we recognize the dire picture, if we see it for what it is um, and stop ignoring it, I think we might have a chance um, to stop further aggregation of power. Um, and that's critical. We might have a chance to stop CCP hegemony globally. Um, but we really have to recognize it. We have to understand it um, to do something about it. What is it in your mind that, that really needs to be understood to be able to tackle this? I mean, right now, the, you know, the 10 meter threat is China. China is influencing Russia. It's influencing North Korea. It's influencing Iran. Uh, terrorism. Uh, there's a very strong argument by Teng Biao and uh, Terry Marsh uh, who've written that according to U.S. law, if you really apply U.S. law in a rigorous way, the CCP is a terrorist organization. We have to recognize that. We have to see the CCP for what it is um, to really understand that we can't allow our corporations to just do business with the CCP willy-nilly because that will turn them into terrorist organizations. I mean, we, I mean, it sounds, you know, extreme, but the reality is that you, you, we have a organization that is like, that is truly like a mafia organization or a terrorist organization, and they're involved in the UN. They're paying off presidents around the world. Um, you know, they're influencing people at very, very high levels. Hunter Biden got a three-carat diamond, you know, from people linked to this. We have to realize there is a problem here, and we need to take action to exclude terrorists, to exclude mafia people, to exclude the CCP from our highest decision makers. And we have not done that as a nation and definitely in other countries. It's, they're even worse off. 
So you know, to the to the viewers um, right now, because I know I know our my viewers somewhat, and and frankly and frankly myself, I'm thinking, who who is going to do this, right? Because a lot of the people who you might expect normally would, are, kind of playing playing ball, right? Or at least to some extent, right? I don't think you know I. I it, it, People have multiple motivations, but the, as you've been outlining, the CCP has created a lot of leverage over all sorts of people in all sorts of a myriad of ways. It's been its project for decades, right? So I agree with your, I think you make a compelling argument, but who's actually going to do this? The citizens. I mean, citizens have to demand that uh, corruption in Washington, D.C., in Brussels, in London, and sometimes it's legalized corruption. Uh, that, that influence, those, those avenues of influence, uh, must be shut off. We cannot allow uh, the children of our presidents to go do business in China and get three-carat diamonds from CCP-linked individuals. Uh, John Kerry's son was in business with Hunter Biden related to China. It creates a massive conflict of interest that we just can't allow. As citizens, we, can't, we cannot delegate leadership to people who have a conflict of interest on the China issue. Yeah, but, and, but that leaves almost no one at this point. We need new laws. We need stronger laws. We need to enforce existing laws. Some, some laws aren't even enforced for years. Uh, the Foreign Agent Registration Act was not enforced. They had no investigators to actually really, you know, to find out who was actually breaking the law. It's full of loopholes. It needs to be revised and, and revoted and strengthened. But that won't happen until regular American citizens get out onto the streets and start protesting against corruption that is happen happening at every, you know, whether it's academia, our politics, our economics, right? People are being compromised. The Harvard chemist. You know, as we speak, I believe, you know, the trial has just begun or should have begun um, of Charles Lieber. I mean, one of the world's leading experts in nanotechnology. Basically, the indictment says that he um, was taking something like $50,000 a month from the Chinese Communist Party, had an off-the-books lab that was created uh, in, in China that he, that he oversaw. Um, and yeah, he's being tried for not disclosing these things, right? And you know, the, there's even some people today, and I was, I was reading an article about this just before we sat down, uh, that are wondering whether that there was actually problematic is, is, is that really a problem? Why not, why not uh, you know, have these good cooperative relationships? I mean, this is, this is what someone was writing in a, in a respectable public, ostensibly respectable publication, right? So I agree with many of the things you're saying. It just, it, 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 it makes one, it doesn't make one filled with confidence and hope necessarily that this is actually going to be resolved. Yeah, it is, it, there is a pessimistic uh, tinge to the book, um, but the, the last chapter talks about uh, protecting our diversity, protecting the disaggregation of power. I mean, actually capitalism is part of that. 
it's, uh, you know, we have many people who have their own property. Um, those are that, you know, when people own a company or they own a home, they have an independence from the massive hierarchies in society that you would never get in China. Um, and so this, these small forms of independence that we have are critically important uh, to the maintenance of freedom, uh, to the maintenance of religious freedom, of, to the freedom of property, um, to the Second Amendment. All of these things are disaggregations of power that are being chipped away over time. Um, and will be will continue to be chipped away if we don't take a more serious approach to this. And we have to hold we have to hold our leaders accountable. Part of the problem too is partisanship. We we tend to stick to one party. Uh, you know we think that that party we start to think that party is going to be perfect, and we start to think that um, and we start to not be critical of that party um, when. It also, in certain ways, is compromised. All of our political parties are beholden to billionaires, large corporations. They're doing business in China. And all of those corporations and billionaires are putting pressure on our elected leaders of both parties to go easy on China's human rights abuse, to go easy when China claims to own the whole South China Sea. When China, you know, says openly they're planning to invade Taiwan, it's really kind of interesting that you say this because you know, looking at what's happened in most liberal democracies, not all. There's some really stark exceptions. Is a massive aggregation of power as a result of COVID policy or CCP virus policy, actually, as we call it at the Epoch Times. I mean, that, I, that's unmistakable, unquestionable. To me, as I was reading, I was thinking, man, that ratchet really, really got a big swing up, you know, during this time. You know, we're talking about the small businesses decimated, right? Um, all, yeah, at, at, at many, many levels. There's a, so, so what is your, what are, what are your thoughts about this? I mean, that's, I think most, you know, I think Sweden would be an exception. There's some U.S. states that are an exception. But I don't know of too many other places that are, frankly, an exception to this. Yeah, we, we got locked down. We accepted it. You know, it's definitely part of this aggregation of power by the state. In, in the past, we've had pandemics. And you did not have this level of individual control by the state. This is new. Is this another way that the CCP has influenced us? Well, the virus certainly started in China, and uh, the CCP was pushing very, very draconian lockdown measures as the proper response. And I, I don't. I think actually the most draconian measures are there in China. Oh no, I, unquestionably. But look at look at the great results they got. Only something like four thousand dead. It's incredible. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to I don't want to uh, be glib about this, but of course, I, I I hope most people don't believe those numbers. We have seen, as we've just discussed, aggre this aggregation of power in all sorts of ways. It's been, I think, transparent to 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 most people that even maybe didn't think about such things very much. 
but it's been very obvious and it's been in many areas of society, it's been in many countries, at many levels. It, this last chapter in, in your book is about how to disaggregate. Uh, tell me about how this, how this can actually happen. Of course, this, you said the citizens, but what is it the citizens, what are the citizens going to do here? Well, the preservation, I think, of our freedoms that we still have, because I think a lot of freedoms are gone already, but what we still have has to be preserved. Um, and the citizens, there's no one that will do this other than the citizens, because everyone high up in the hierarchy tends to be compromised in one way or the other. Um, most recently, the you know, social media uh, clampdown, um, defunding of alternate voices. Epoch Times is, is one of them. NTD, uh, China Uncensored. All of these um, critical voices of China, which is what I watch, are being, are, are being defunded. How can you operate? Uh, you know, how can you get your message out if you've got absolutely nothing uh, to, to spend? I was on a show recently um, that was defunded by YouTube. They didn't have any money for a cameraman. So one of the people, one of the presenters, had to move back and forth and fix the camera. You know, how can you, how can you, and, and then the result, of course, is, is something that doesn't look quite as professional as Bloomberg or quite as professional as CNN. Um, so there's this bias that's being introduced in the media um, that is absolutely part of this concentration of power. If you go against the narrative of, uh, you know, if you go against the CCP, which is where all the power is aggregating, you're defunded. You're delegitimized. You know, um, well, yeah, you, you already kind of suggested the answer. So you go to the citizens. That's what, we, that's what we've done at the Epoch Times, of course. And we're so grateful for those, the many citizens who, who, who buy subscription or support us in other ways. It's the only way it works, right? So that's interesting that you say that. Yeah, Trump is starting his own social media, which is absolutely the right thing to do. If Twitter removes you and your millions of followers, uh, you know, how wrong is that? How wrong is that, especially to a sitting president? It's, it's unprecedented that uh, a big corporation like that would, and, and something that's supposed to be a democratization of information. The internet was supposed to be a democratization of information where we could all have a voice, and those voices that were popular you know, would rise up. That's what happened with Trump. And then the corporation comes down and knocks him down. So we'll see. We'll see if he, if Trump is successful in his new social media uh, outfit, we have hope. If he's not successful, it's trouble. Because we have hope because you feel it's going to be a democratizing force, basically, a disaggregating force. It's a disaggregating force. You're taking power um, from Twitter, from Facebook the biggest corporations, the biggest social media corporations that are trying to influence and control and channel uh, the way we think about the world in a way that's entirely unnatural because they're removing dissident voices. Um, and those dis if those dissident voices are able to create their own media platforms in, a way, in the same way that Epoch Times or NTD or you know, all of these different platforms are doing, 
if they're able to be successful and survive and grow, uh, then I think we have hope. Hmm. So really, you know, you're basically, your call to action is everyone needs to get busy. I mean, really, that's what you're saying. People need to get busy fighting for freedom, defending the freedoms they have. Uh, don't ever let a single freedom go. Don't give an inch of territory to the CCP or any other dictator or autocrat. Well, Anders, thanks for writing The Concentration of Power. I think it's a very important book. I'm looking forward to seeing the next, uh, you know, the next columns coming out, obviously, this week, given what I've seen before. Such a pleasure to have you on again. Thank you. Thank you.